0: Our sermon today will be taken from Genesis twenty-nine, fifteen through 30. This is the word of God. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Thus says the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Let's pray. Father, we don't presume to go to your word independent of your Holy Spirit. Um, relying only on our minds and on our logical capacities. We beg you, Father, that you make these words and the truths here real. Let it seep deeply. Let it actually be functionally effective in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. And we beg you, Lord, for this mercy. Make us fall in deeper love with you as we see and behold who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so today we're going to continue through the series uh, that we've been going through, which is a series of the life of Jacob. And if you remember, this is a story of a man who messed up and continues to mess up royally. Just a few chapters ago, we see Jacob deceiving his father, Isaac, by taking advantage of his blindness. Isaac was blind, and Jacob made his father think that Jacob was Esau, his older brother. Why did Jacob lie to his blind father um, about his identity? To steal the inheritance that the father wanted to give to Esau. The father originally wanted to give the older brother the inheritance, but Jacob said, no, I want it for myself. Deceived the father using his blindness. And through this self-deceit, the family was ruined. Esau got really, really upset, and he's now out to kill Jacob. Jacob, who is now running from his older brother, from the family that he's ruined, from the consequences of his past mistakes. He's out to fend for himself. He's in a desert, going through the wilderness, lonely, without money or food. And as we studied last week, where did he go? To his uncle's house, Laban. What is he hoping to find there? A wife. Why a wife? Well, we saw last week because it represented family, descendants. Something God promised to him, by the way. And what do descendants back then represent? Future security, protection, provision. Remember, this is a time before Health and life insurance. You need a family to protect you. But also in this passage today, more so than future security, a wife in our passage for Jacob represents love and acceptance and dignity. If he found a wife, finally, he'd have someone to love him and accept him, something that he's been deprived his whole life, mind you. His father loved his older brother more. His older brother didn't really care much about him. The only person that loved him really was probably his mother, who he now will never see again because of the mistake he did. Rachel, Jacob thought, Rachel is the answer. Being married to her, having a family with her, would be the fulfillment of God's promise. It would redeem me from the consequences of my past mistakes. I can stop running now. I won't be lonely anymore, I'll have hope for the future, security from all uncertainty, and my longings will be fulfilled. Rachel, in other words, would make him whole. Now it's interesting, almost every other section of the book of Genesis always mentions the word Lord or God, in almost all of them. But in our passage that we read last week, verses 1 to 14 of Genesis chapter 29, and our passage today, verses 15 to 30 of Genesis chapter 29, not once was the word God or Lord used. What's the author trying to tell us? That Jacob has pushed God out of center stage and replaced him with Rachel. Did God promise Jacob descendants? Yes. Wasn't Jacob just pursuing something that God promised? Yes. But in this pursuit, Jacob has worshipped the gift rather than the gift giver. And he's replaced the gift giver with the gift. And God is asking the readers of this passage today, you and I, to look at our own lives And think about, what are we worshiping? What or in whom do we put true hope for wholeness in? Where do we find ultimate sense of dignity and worth? What or who who have we put on the center stage of our lives? And interestingly enough, we see in our passage today, the two things that I think the modern man struggles with is the very two things that we see the characters in this passage also struggle with. And when they take over our hearts, they're destructive. Three things I want to point out. The false God of romance that reduces, the false God of money that objectifies, and the one true God who dignifies. The false God of romance that reduces, the false God of money that objectifies, and the one true God who dignifies. Point one. The false God of romance that reduces. Our passage starts with verse 15 with Laban, Rachel's father, offering Jacob a job. Why? Because he saw that Jacob had nothing. So he asked Jacob, Work for me, what will your wages be? And look at Jacob's answer in verse 18. He didn't want money. What did he want? He wanted Rachel. He said, verse 18, I will serve you for seven years for a younger daughter, Rachel. Now, this one sentence tells us a lot. Back then, if a man wanted to marry a wife, the customary token of honor that the groom usually gives the bride's family is 30 shekels. Based on the average monthly wage, which is 1.5 shekels, seven years of work would equal 126 shekels. Jacob was willing to give for Rachel four times the normal amount of the bridal token. I mean, what are you going to do? The man was in love. And now a lot of people miss this. Notice, here's what's crazier. Laban wasn't the one who set the terms. (laughs) Laban didn't ask for seven years. No, Jacob was the one who kind of erupted into an impassioned outburst. I'll give you seven years. I'll do anything for Rachel, is what he's saying. Why did he say that? Because Rachel was everything for him. She was the key. She was going to be the one that's going to make him whole. She was going to be one that was going to have a meaning, dignity, and love. Now, I'm not just trying to be hard on Jacob here. Some of you are probably thinking, give the poor man a break. He's in love. Stop beating on him. And I, I know, I'm not trying to be a downer in romance, but what the author is trying to say here, that this isn't romance. This is worship. We got to read the context clues. Can you be a helpless romantic and be faithful to the Lord at the same time? Yes, of course. But this wasn't romance. This was worship. Jacob forgot God altogether and replaced him with Rachel. Let me show you. First of all, we see this because this has been, forgetting God has been Jacob's MO since day one. Chapter 27, he forgot God, deceived his blind father, and robbed that which belonged to his older brother. Beginning of chapter 29, we saw last week that he forgot God, and and throughout his pursuit of Rachel, he threw down a stone that represented God's faithfulness. And as mentioned earlier, God's name was not mentioned even once. Anywhere in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. But on top of that, we also see here that Jacob is portrayed as sort of a carnal, lustful man who looks at Rachel through lustful, fleshly eyes. Look at verse 17 with me. The author tells us why Jacob preferred Rachel um, over Leah, who's Rachel's older sister. Verse 17, because Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, weak eyes isn't a commentary on her eyesight. It doesn't say Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had 20-20 vision. (laughs) It said Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was what? The beautiful one. Rachel was the pretty one. Rachel was physically attractive, and Leah wasn't the pretty sister. Now, is it wrong to prefer someone who's physically attractive? Of course not. But then you look at how Jacob is portrayed in verse 21. After Jacob completed 7 years of work for the more beautiful sister, what were the first words Jacob said to Laban in verse 21? Go go to it with me. Then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife that I may go into her." I mean, that made some of you blush. Right? It's 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 the choice of word here. The Old Testament Hebrew scholars are confused these these choice of words are not the normal words used to describe this union of marriage. Many commentators say this is not common wedding betrothal language. It's overtly sexual, almost unnecessarily carnal. Why? The author is trying to emphasize Jacob's focus is on the physical, on the material. There's a sense in which as God gets pushed further and further to the sidelines, Jacob is described to be more and more carnal. And plus, we see soon after Jacob said this, he got drunk out of his mind. <laughs> Why do you think Jacob wasn't able to recognize that Laban gave him Leah instead of Rachel on the wedding night? Because in verse 22, it says, read it with me, Laban threw a feast. Now, the word feast here is not the normal word used for feast. Is The Hebrew is misteh. And misteh is a specific Hebrew word described to describe a drinking feast feast that a lot of alcohol is consumed now i don't know how drunk one has to be to not recognize his own bride but the use of the phrase mista is a feast um, intended uh, that says that jacob very likely partook in some heavy drinking so jacob was very drunk plus this is pre-electricity day so it was dark it makes sense how laban was able to pull off this deception Jacob's MO, all the context clues in this passage, the way Jacob's portrayed, all points to Jacob's love for Rachel here is not a God-fearing, God-remembering kind of love. It is a God-forgetting, carnal, false-worship kind of love. And in my time in full-time ministry, if there's a force strong enough to make even the most devout worshipers falter, it'll be this, your love life. Why? Because it's so easy. It's so easy to make our loved ones as our ultimate hope for wholeness and love and dignity and honor and future, especially in the Asian context where singleness is so often wrongly demonized as a sin. Just like Jacob, it's so easy for us to worship our significant other, and when you do this, what happens? We do what Jacob did. We reduce people merely to how they can benefit us. Jacob reduced Rachel to something that exists merely to please his desires. Look at how shallow Jacob is described as he views Rachel. All throughout the passage, his focus was on the external appearance that she had, and his focus was on the sexual fulfillment that she can give. See, when you love someone, true love, not worship, the focus focus will be on how you can serve and love and sacrifice for the other person. But when you worship someone, you've reduced them to be a tool to meet your needs for identity, for significance, for sex, for dignity, for wholeness. This is what Jacob made Rachel out to be. Now, how can we tell whether it's love or false worship? Because they both can feel really similar. They're both just as intense, maybe. Well, a lot of ways, but here may be some ways. One, you'll know by how they react when you disappoint them. If someone truly loves you, If someone's in it for you and you disappoint them, they'll be hurt, but they'll be able to persevere. But if someone worships you and you disappoint them, they'll be crushed. They'll be crushed because they've put on you a weight that you could never carry. Vice versa, if you love somebody and they disappoint you, you'll be hurt. But if you worship someone, if they're your God and they break up with you, he didn't lose a girlfriend. You lost a God. It'll crush you. <laughs> Another context clue maybe is how they respond when you change. If you're married and your spouse truly loves you, even when you change as a person, they'll stick around. Tim Keller on his book, uh, Meaning of Marriage, wrote something really funny. He said, my wife has been married to 10 different people in the past 36 years, and they've all been me. <laughs> you change. You grow you become different. That, that's what happens after 40 and 50 years of life. If True love, they'll stick around. But if they worship you, they'll hate the change because the new you is no longer the thing that, they, that met their needs. You're different now. They'll mask it with saying we've grown apart. What they're really saying is you no longer meet my needs because they're in it for them. In this narrative, Jacob was in it for Jacob. He's reduced Rachel to become a tool that can meet his needs. He's put a weight on Rachel that she could never have carried, and it made him rash. It made him foolish, vulnerable to Laban's manipulation. Men, like Jacob, we are at our most foolish and boyish state when we judge a woman through fleshly eyes. And ladies, if your primary way of alluring is by the way of the flesh then you'll only attract little foolish boys, not men. And you know what? It'll always disappoint you, just like it disappointed Jacob. How? Jacob hoped for Rachel to be the answer. He wanted redemption from past mistakes of deceiving his blind father Isaac and stealing from his brother Esau. He wanted to stop running. He wanted to put all his hope on Rachel. This is it. Yet very ironically, in this pursuit of Rachel... Jacob ended up being deceived by Laban in the same exact way that he deceived his father Isaac. Think about it. What did Laban do? He deceived Jacob. He made Jacob think that Leah was her younger sister, Rachel. This is what Jacob did to to Isaac. Jacob deceived his father Isaac to make him think that he was his older brother Esau. And how did Jacob deceive his father Isaac? By utilizing the lack of sight. Physical blindness. How did Laban deceive Jacob? Utilizing the lack of sight. Not physical blindness, but through darkness of night and alcohol impairment. He was fooled by Laban the same exact way he fooled his father. In other words, he looked toward Rachel for redemption from his past mistakes, only to find himself be confronted dead on by it. And it's very interesting to note that the Hebrew phrase Jacob said to Laban after, after Laban deceived him in verse 25 in our passage today, what is this you have done to me, is the very same Hebrew phrase that, Jacob, uh, that that Isaac said to Jacob after Jacob tricked him. Jacob the deceiver was deceived. Our idols always disappoint. And this commentary isn't only for Jacob's idolatry, but ours, isn't it? When we put our ultimate hope for wholeness in anything other than God, it will disappoint. Nothing is designed to carry that much weight. Not even good things. Look, you think I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't do bad things. Was Jacob pursuing a bad thing here? He was pursuing marriage. Marriage isn't a bad thing. Who in Indonesia will tell you that wanting to be married is a bad thing? It's not. It's a good thing. The problem isn't that he was pursuing the wrong thing. The problem is that he was putting too much weight on the right thing. That's what idolatry is. That's what false worship is. You put so much hope, too much hope in them. And whatever it is that we rest our dignity and wholeness in, if it's other than God, you'll end up reducing others, you'll crush them or disappoint yourself in the process. And Jacob pushed God to the side, and almost always the next thing that enters the center stage is your love life is your romantic relationship, almost always. A very famous Austrian psychoanalyst, Otto Rank, um, wasn't a Christian, by the way, he said this. He's observed human life, and he said, we, we all need a cosmic hero. In one shape, form, or another, we all attach, attach ourselves to some kind of cosmic hero, hero, whether it be a celebrity or ourselves or a love life. And he said, since in the modern world, God is no longer in the picture, how are we to do this? More often than not, the man fixes their urges of cosmic heroism unto another person in the form of a love object. Ernest Becker, who's not a Christian either, um, in his recent book, Denial of Death, said this, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. He's not a Christian. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. Salvation itself is no longer referred to an abstraction like God but can be sought in the beatification of the other. And in case we are inclined to forget how deified the romantic love object is, the popular songs continually remind us. They tell us that the lover is the, quote-unquote, springtime, the, quote-unquote, angel glow, with eyes, quote-unquote, like the stars, that the experience of love will be, quote-unquote, divine, like heaven itself, and so on and on. We know this. We we know how much we tend to worship and love our romantic partner or desire for one. Have you had romantic relationships like that? Are you in one now? Not a God-fearing one, a god-forgetting one. And if we're not aware of it, if we don't deal with it, much like an addiction, here's what will happen. Here's what idols do. At first you handle it, and then it'll start handling you. You'll need more and more and more of it to get the same amount of sensation. And we see somebody in this story like that. He's grown callous. It's, his idol has handled him. Not Jacob, but Laban, whose idolatry, I'd say, is at a point of callousness, probably even more destructive than Jacob's. But Laban's idol wasn't a romantic relationship. It was another thing very familiar to us today. It was capital. Return on investment, was money. Point number two, how the false god of money objectifies. Now, is money bad? No. Let me remind us again. The thing in itself might not be bad, but the amount of weight and hope that Laban put on it is clearly too much. How do we know that? Well, first, like Jacob, this has been Laban's MO since we first see him in the Genesis narrative. He's always loved money. His attention has always been focused on gold and silver. Let me direct our attention to when Laban first appeared in Genesis chapter 24. So in Genesis chapter 24, the story is Abraham sent his servant um, to look for a wife for his son Isaac. Abraham gave his servant a lot of money so that they can show whoever the uh, uh, bride's family is that Abraham can provide. So in Genesis 24, the servant left with a bunch of money um, and met Rebekah, who will be Isaac's future wife. An Abraham's servant gave Rebekah the jewelry that Abraham gave him. And guess who else was there? Laban. What was the first thing Laban's eyes saw? Here's Genesis chapter 24, verse 29 to 30 and 31. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he said, "'Come in, O blessed of the Lord.'" What did he see? Jacob saw Rachel and saw her physical attractiveness. Laban saw Abraham's servant and saw gold. I mean, this is why he deceived Jacob in the first place, to cut costs. He wanted to cut costs and get free labor. This is his MO. Laban says, always oh, it has his sights on profits. This is what he wants most in life. But this is why I said it seemed a bit more worse than Jacob's. Laban was so into it that he was willing to even objectify his own daughter's. To get more of it. You know what the names Leah and Rachel meant back then in the Hebrew? Now, if this is your name, I'm sure it's not what your parents meant when they named you. Okay. But back then in the Hebrew, Leah means cow, and Rachel means ewe. Not like ewe, but like a female sheep, an ewe. A cow and an ewe. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about how Laban viewed his daughters? Merely as cattle. As cattle to trade and give and sell in return for capital, which is what he did in the story with Jacob. Now, we may never say this out loud or even be as bad as Laban, but parents, is there not a tendency for us to objectify our children as tools for personal benefit? When the child does something bad and gets in trouble, and rightly so, as parents, we should be upset at them. But yet, a few say, not many parents say, some do, how can you do this to yourself? Some say that. But what do most parents say? Not how can you do this to yourself, but what? How can you do this to me? How could you shame me by committing this mistake? How could you dishonor me? by acting like this, how could you disrespect me by making this terrible decision? Now, I'm not saying we as parents aren't allowed to express hurt to our children, of course we are, but could it be possible that we have placed our hope and dignity and honor on our kids' shoulders a little more than we probably should? And I see this in myself. Why is it so important that Elena walked at 10 months a little, little bit earlier than other kids? What's the big deal? Why does that matter? She doesn't care. No one cares. I care. Why? Because it made me feel better about myself. That's a silly example, but do we not see seeds of this, tendencies of this in our own life? I've unknowingly, this might be dramatic, but I think I have the tendency of this, I'm, I'm knowingly and I can make Elena primarily my PR agent for me and for my family. It's nowhere near Laban's callousness, but do we not see the seeds of it? Laban's worship of money made him objectify those dearest to him, made him sacrifice his family for the bottom line, a narrative not too foreign to the modern man. A famous poet and historian, Henry David Thoreau, said famously, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. The price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. And I wonder if Laban has ever paused to think what his money has cost him. It's cost him the honor and dignity of both his daughters. Ruin his relationship with them as we'll see later in Genesis chapter 31. What has your money cost you? What has your romantic relationships cost you? God is telling us in this passage, if you keep doing that, you'll keep reducing people. It'll make you objectify them. It'll end up disappointing you and eventually it's going to handle you. One of the richest men alive, Paul Getty, as depicted in a recent movie based on true events in his life, responded this way when his grandson was abducted for ransom. He found out the situation was getting really, really dire, and the detective came to him and said, you need to pay the ransom, Mr. Getty. Mr. Getty said, I do not have the money to spare. The Detective said, no one has ever been richer than you are at this moment. What would it take for you to feel secure? He said, more, just more. He's objectified his own grandson. He didn't get security he thought money could give him. He just needed more and more and more. It's handled him. And he's lost his relationships. He's disappointed. What then is the answer? How can we be free of this? I've, hopefully this passage has convinced us that we're all prone to this hopefully this passage has convinced us this isn't just a testimony of um, Laban and Jacob's idolatry, but of ours as well. So what's the answer? How can we be free of idolatry? See, you can't just delete it. Try doing that. Go home today after the sermon and look at your passions. If if you're prone to fall into worshiping a romantic relationship, just clench your fist really hard and say, Stop it. Just try doing that. Or if you love money so much, if that's your object of worship, try doing that. Go home, close your eyes, and just kind of look in the mirror and say, stop. <laughs> it won't work. You know it doesn't work. You've tried it. You've tried not loving the things you love and it doesn't work. Why? Because this whole time, maybe most of you, we've been trying to delete it. The Bible says you can't delete it. You've got to replace it. You've got to replace it. Last point how the one true God dignifies. Now, as you read and studied this whole story, there's one person in the story that often is easily missed by the reader, which is really ironic because this person happens also to be the one that is most unloved in the story. Who is it? Leah. Dear Leah, out of everyone in the story, she is most humiliated, undignified, most unseen. Let me show you. From the very beginning, verse 17, before we are told anything about her, she was immediately identified in comparison to her sister. She was the unattractive one. Rachel is the beautiful one. Her whole life, she's unseen. She's been living under the shadows of her more beautiful and attractive sister. And then she was used as an an object by her own father to be auctioned off to Jacob like cattle, which is what her name means anyways, cow. I mean, this is her marriage we're talking about. The rest of her life. Imagine what she must have felt. And then put yourself in her shoes. What must she have felt all throughout the wedding night? How undignified it must have been for her to know that The husband she's with is only with her because he thought that she was someone else. In fact, he thought she was the person that she's been competing with her whole life. Imagine the humiliation, but her sorrows haven't ended yet. Then, the morning after, when daylight did come, what must she have felt when she saw the disgust in Jacob's face? You're not Rachel. What must she have felt when Jacob and Laban, his own, her own father and husband, were arguing in verses 25 to 26? What must she have felt when she heard her husband say, she's not who I wanted? And her father saying, yeah, I know, but just bear with her. And work with me more, then I'll give you the pretty one. Then I'll give you the one that you've really wanted. Over and over and over, she's humiliated, undignified, unseen but someone did see her alongside Leah. There was someone else in this story, also forgotten, also pushed aside, also unmentioned who God, the forgotten God didn't forget Leah. The first time God finally appears in this whole chapter was in verse 31. And the second he appeared, he had Leah on his mind. It's not on your passage, but if you look at verse 31, I think it's on the screen, it says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now this is significant. Yes, because the Lord gave Leah children and children represented dignity and honor that Leah didn't get from the world. But the main point here isn't the children in themselves. Stick with me. It's who the children pointed to. If you trace the lineage of Leah... Leah's children, all the way to the New Testament, guess who it ends up getting to? Jesus. Leah, mother Judah. Judah, through whose line, uh, uh, bore David, who came about as king of Israel, who then became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Do you see what this means? Look at, Look at what the author is trying to tell us here about who God is. God bestowed divine honor upon the undignified and forgotten Leah by planning to bring about the Savior of the world through her seed. But why? Why would God choose the unwanted one, the undignified one, the unexpected, quote-unquote, wrong person? Why? Because this is the very way that God will redeem the world in an unexpected way through the quote-unquote wrong person who was jesus in isaiah 53 it says he was despised by men there's no form or majesty about him or beauty about him what did philip say in john chapter one when he first heard about jesus can anything good come out of nazareth do you see the biblical storyline of redemption here the unexpected god includes the unexpected wife to bring about the unexpected redemption of the world What do I mean unexpected? Because this is what we expect, right? We expect God will save us how? By saying this. This is what every other world religion says. If you're morally and ethically beautiful, if you're morally and ethically beautiful, then, okay, I'll save you. But you must first be obedient to me. You must do more good things than bad things. You must be morally, ethically, religiously beautiful. That's what every other world religion says. If you are able to be a good person, in other words... If you're able to be morally and ethically beautiful, in other words, if you are morally and ethically look like Rachel, not like Leah, then I love you. That's what we expect. What does Christianity teach? What does the gospel say? Why is it distinct? The gospel says this. What is Jesus' birth all about? It is about the beautiful God who put on flesh. It is about the most desirable being in the universe who became an undesired human being died on the cross, undignified, humiliated, scorned, so that he may redeem you. The unexpected God used the unexpected wife to bring about the unexpected redemption of the world. But one more question. Why Leah? It's tempting to think, well, maybe God just likes underdogs. Or, may, or maybe you know, maybe Leah wasn't physically attractive, but maybe she is morally and ethically attractive. Maybe she's beautiful on the inside, right? But then you read the part of the story, verses 32 and 34, and you see Leah objectifying her children to worship a false idol as well. It's on the screen. Let me read it to you. Verse 32, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Her children was an object for her husband's love. Verse 34, Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time a husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Leah's reduced, objectified her children so that Jacob would love her more than Rachel. Here is more evidence. Okay, after she stopped bearing children, look at her addiction here to this. Guess what she ended up doing in chapter 30. It's not in the passage, not on the screen. In chapter 30, we see uh leah telling jacob to sleep with zilpah who is zilpah if you look at your passage she is the servant that laban gave leah in verse 24 jacob sleep with zilpah why so that she can get more children (laughs) that she can get more honor more love from her husband she compete more with rachel about who has more children she's reduced her kids she's objectified zilpah All because she looked unto her husband as her ultimate place to find dignity, honor, love, and wholeness. She was an idol worshiper too. So then why did God remember Leah? Why did God have pity on her and dignify her even when she doesn't deserve it? Hear this. This is the unexpected plan of redemption. Because he knew that one day he was going to put on flesh and die on a cross to take all of Leah's shame and all of Leah's dishonor on himself her sin was going to be placed on her the shame that she has accumulated by her own sin and by what has been done to her christ will put on himself on the cross god was mocked dishonored, broken so that he may give leah dignity honor and wholeness on the cross the father turned his face away from jesus so that he can look upon unwanted leah with longing eyes look guys the bible says we're all idolaters like jacob like laban like leah we've all placed our final hope for wholeness on created things we've hurt reduced objectified people in the process we've put too much weight on them that they should never carry only to be disappointed over and over again the gospel doesn't say delete that the gospel doesn't say delete that need it says replace it how can you replace it in god in whom you have dignity and honor and wholeness in jesus the unexpected savior the one true God who became ugly and despised so that he may lavish his everlasting love upon you. The gospel says, keep with me. Let's drive this in. There is divine eyes looking at you, and you may feel like Aaliyah. Physically, morally, ethically, socially, professionally, relationally, romantically, you might feel like Aaliyah. But on the cross when God sees you, he sees his Rachel. He sees Rachel. And he's willing to give up anything for you. Not just 14 years, his whole life. When that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. On the cross, the Father casts his eyes away from his Son so that he may never take him off you. The gospel calls you to behold this God who is looking right back at you with loving eyes you can't even begin to imagine. And now, the more you stare unto those eyes as you pray, as you read his word with gospel lenses, as you expose yourself to gospel-centered preaching, the more and more and more you'll be lured in to worship him, the one true God, the only one who's able to handle all your longings for hopes and wholeness, and and you'll finally be free. You can take your eyes off yourself and stop objectifying people as tools your friends will no longer be the primary place you, you find affirmation. Your kids will no longer primarily exist to honor you. Your spouse will no longer primarily exist to make you whole. Your bank account will no longer be the source of your dignity. The progress of your career will no longer be your primary source of value. But to do this, you've got to replace it. The gospel has got to be real in your lives. It's got to grow deeper in your hearts. Expose yourself to it daily until it continues to handle you. You can't fight idols by deleting it. You've got to replace it. With whom? With Christ, the one true God. Let me end with this quote. How good is God, Jonathan Edwards wrote, that he has created man for this very end to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself, the Almighty, who is happy from the days of eternity in himself, might make man blessed in the beholding of his excellency and might in this way glorify him himself. Behold his glory and how he's looking at you. Place your love in this one true being that can handle it. Put him back on center stage. Behold the cross. See the divine eyes that will never lose sight of you. Let's pray.